Well, if you will, open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 is, as we have during the Advent season been looking in particular at the incarnation of Christ, we have looked at various aspects of it, and certainly there is more, much more to be covered that we won't cover just in an Advent season. But we've looked at the very nature of Christ as being the God-man. We've, we've looked at His humility. We've looked at His, His attributes, but today we're going to look at the, if you will, political ramifications of the incarnation uh, in, in Christ and uh, uh, the effects uh, that His coming has uh, on the world. And so what I want to do together this morning is to read uh, Matthew chapter 2, and verses 1 to 18, uh, but we're really just going to highlight a few different portions uh, in that text as we, as we move through it. So Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we read, Matthew writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children, 
She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are reminded from this text that not all rejoice at the coming of the King. Not all rejoice then and not all will rejoice when He comes again. We are reminded specifically how threatening the King of Kings can be to those who believe themselves to be absolute kings on the earth. The very reality that they will have to give an account is one that as we see in the person of Herod strikes fear into them. The possibility that their authority could be undermined by a higher law, a higher God, and a higher king is enough to fly them into fits of rage, to lash out here in the person or towards the person of Christ, but also against any who may be associated with him. And so, Lord, we are reminded during Christmas and reminded by the Incarnation that that we too may have to face the threats that are the result of the kingship of Christ being in opposition to the kings of the earth. And I pray for each one of us here, Lord, that if and when the time comes where we are faced with the decision to either compromise on the Word of God, compromise on the Gospel, and compromise in our loyalty and obedience to Christ for the sake of saving our own lives. Lord, that we would choose to be obedient and serve Christ, even if it means losing our own lives. I pray, Father, that this day would be a reminder that this world as it is now is not our ultimate home. But that we are those who serve the King who is above all other kings. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Christmas, as you know, is often looked at as a nice and celebratory holiday where everyone, Christian or otherwise, can come together and rejoice, at least over some idea of peace on earth. For many Christians, of course, we celebrate the peace that only comes through Jesus, And for others who are not Christians, perhaps they celebrate during this time the peace of being together with family, peace of counting your blessings in life, or or they celebrate just the the festivities and, and the lights and the decorations. Christmas is a time where we can watch all of our favorite Christmas movies. Movies about Santa Claus and elves. Movies about the Grinch, maybe. Movies about miracles that tend to happen around this Christmas season. Whatever the particular emphasis may be, for many, many people, including evangelicals, Christmas is all about peace, happiness, joy, and celebration. Even the Incarnation is largely viewed as only a joyous occasion that itself brought much joy to the world. We think of the story of Mary giving birth to her child Jesus in a lowly manger. The angels announcing His birth to shepherds and singing the praises of Jesus and 
We think of all of the glorious truths that are manifested in the eternal Son of God being born as an innocent human baby, and it fills our hearts with joy. Even as perhaps we set up little manger scenes that at times are not very historically accurate, but we, we set them up and we, we celebrate, in essence, the, the innocence of Christmas. We celebrate over many of these truths having to do with the Incarnation. And, and we should celebrate these things. We should rejoice over these things. The Incarnation of the Son of God, which is the whole point of Christmas, is in fact a joyous occasion. But there is also a darker side to Christmas that often goes overlooked. We love to read the story of the Magi, the wise men coming from the East, and following the signs of heaven that led them to the infant child, Jesus, so that they could worship Him. But we tend to leave out the rest of the birth narrative. And what we find, if we keep on reading, is that the birth of Christ in the Incarnation not only brought much joy, and not only brought the fulfillment of so many of God's promises made so long ago by the prophets, but it also brought violence and grief and sorrow and mourning and lamentation. Christmas is not all celebration and joy for everyone. Christmas, in a very real sense, is dangerous. Christmas is threatening. The incarnation of the Son of God, when understood properly, is a threat to the rulers of this age and a threat to all who are opposed to bowing the knee to the Son of God. To bowing the knee to the One who was born King of the Jews and the One who is King over all nations. In Matthew chapter 2, of course, we see this darker side of Christmas. The darker side of, of the Incarnation. Matthew tells us about the events that accompanied the birth of Jesus shortly after He was born. Matthew's birth account is not so much focused on the very day that Jesus was born, as is the case in Luke's Gospel, but it's more so focused on the response of those who heard of His birth. And by and large, with a few exceptions, the response to His birth, the response to the Christmas message was not a good one. It was not a joyous occasion. The worldly powers had a very different response to the birth of Jesus then the heavenly powers, particularly in the angelic creatures had at Jesus' birth, when they sang praise. That was not the response of the powers and the rulers of the world. And we're introduced in particular to this response in the first three verses of chapter 2. In the first three verses, if you look at me there, the word king occurs three times in these first three verses. In verse 1, Matthew refers to the wise men who came in the days of Herod the king. In verse 2, these same wise men are inquiring about the one who was born king of the Jews. And then in verse 3, we see Herod again the king hearing of the birth 
of the one who was born King of the Jews. And the repetition of this word here is intentional. There is a contrast that Matthew is presenting here between the kingship of Herod, who even though he was recognized as a legitimate king in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of God, he was in every way illegitimate. There is a contrast between his kingship and the kingship of the one who was born king. Herod had become king through political maneuvering, through manipulation and war. The Roman Empire recognized him as a king over all of Judea and the surrounding territories. They propped him up as a a vassal king who served under Caesar. Herod had established royal dynasty for himself, as it was the case that once he died, his sons would then take over ruling in the various territories. Herod had the authority of a king. He could declare war. He acted as a judge, executing those who broke his laws and executing those who were a threat. He could convene legal councils. He wielded the sword of a king. There is no question if you were a Jew who were living in the early years of the first century and even before, and you lived in Jerusalem, you recognized you lived under a monarchical government and Herod was your king. He is the authority of the land. In, the, in every legal sense of the word, Herod rules. But in the eyes of God and in the eyes of heaven, And in the eyes of Scripture, Herod was not, in fact, king of the Jews. He had no lineage that connected him to David that made him a legitimate king. And so he was, in very many ways, more so in line with all of the ancient kings of Israel who had achieved their kingship through usurpation. He was just like many of those ill legitimate kings that we learned about as we went through the book of Hosea. That's what kind of king he was. He had not been anointed king by any prophet. You can think of how even Saul was anointed to be king. David was to be king. Herod had no kind of to be ruler. He was no devout follower of Judaism. He didn't write down a copy of the law and memorize it and rule in accordance with it as was required of all of Israel's kings in the book of Deuteronomy. This is not what Herod did. This is not how he ruled. He did not submit himself to God. And so Herod was an illegitimate king in the eyes of heaven. He did not rule according to righteousness. He ruled according to His own lust for power. And so when Jesus was born, and when He was born as the Christ, the King of the Jews, Herod did not see His birth as a call for celebration. He was excited that all of the promises of God now being fulfilled in this little child, Jesus. He didn't see in the Christ the One who would be the grand fulfillment of everything that the prophets foretold. And He did not see in the Christ a Savior who would never save from sin. He saw in this message He saw in in what he heard from the wise men only a threat 
to His power. He saw in the birth of Jesus a child had been born. And this caused Him to be greatly troubled in His own heart. If you look at verse 3, Matthew says that when Herod heard that the wise men were searching for the one who had been born King of the Jews, he was troubled. This is the same word here that Matthew uses later in chapter 14, verse 26, to describe the disciples' reaction in seeing Jesus walking on the water. We read there that they were terrified. The disciples were filled with terror, believing that they had seen a ghost, and they cried out in fear. This is the kind of reaction, this visceral reaction that Herod, this man is now at the hearing of the birth of Christ, is filled with terror. Christmas is no good news to him. Christmas is a clear signal to him that there is a legitimate king of the Jews whose authority is greater than his own. That he is not the greatest authority in the land even though he occupies the office of king. And for rulers who lust for power, the idea that there could be one who stands in authority over them and to whom they will have to give an account is a terrifying prospect. And when rulers are terrified, specifically of losing control of what authority they tend not to act in measured, well-thought-out ways. I'm sure that we are all keenly aware that when our own politicians sense that they're about to lose power, perhaps through election, or even perhaps through some scandal that has come about, you do not tend to see these politicians think of ways that they can now make persuasive arguments to the populace of why they should remain in their position. That's not how they respond. They, they go into full mafia mode. <laughs> they say, grab as much dirt on my opponent as you can come up with whether or not it's true, and publicize it to the world. It's kill or be killed. They go on the offensive. The only thing that some rulers understand is how to use power or to abuse power in order to keep power. And in the case of Herod, that is exactly what he decided to do. He came up with a, a kind of search and he summoned the chief priests and the scribes. He, he summoned some of his religious loyalists. That's in essence, this, this phrase, chief priests and, and scribes, this is not just giving us a description of, of these people who occupied these positions and, and offices. Virtually every occasion, this phrase, the chief priests and the scribes, these are, these are basically those who held all of the religious power and did not actually know God. They were religious loyal. They were political in nature. And that's who Herod summons. He gets the chief priests and scribes, all of the religious loyalists together. And he asks them, where is the Christ to be born? told him that he was to be born in Bethlehem. Of course, that's what the prophet Micah had prophesied long ago. And so he gets the information that he needed about the particular 
city where Christ was to be born. But then, of course, he wanted the wise men to tell him exactly where the location was. And so what does he do? He, he lies to the wise men. He manipulates them. And he faked a desire to want to serve and worship Christ in order to achieve his own ends. Again, this is not unlike many of our own politicians who love to tout how devout a Catholic they are or uh, how they've so long taught Sunday school classes in their church or how they've grown up to be a, an evangelical or a Protestant Christian their entire lives. And yet, when it comes to their actual policies, they advocate for laws that are not only just sort of morally neutral or kinds of laws that Christians can agree to disagree on. They advocate for laws that in the eyes of God are abomination. Murderous, immoral, ungodly, and that are explicitly contrary to the religion that so many of them claim to follow. The God they claim to follow. They use the worship of God as a cover for their own wickedness. And here, of course, Herod is... Tell me where the Christ has been born so that I too can worship Him. Which was nothing more than a lie. He wants the wise men to find Jesus and then report back to Him so that having located Him, He could kill Him. In fact, in verse 13, we're told that after the wise men had Depart. The Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. That was Herod's initial intention out where the dominions and it was not to celebrate the birth of it wasn't to enjoy the good news of this Christmas season it was to kill the Christ that's what he wanted But as the passage continues, what Matthew then tells us is that Herod's initial plot failed. He attempted to use deceit and manipulation, political machinations to destroy, literally destroy his political rival. But because of divine interventions, neither the wise men nor Jesus' parents fell into Herod's trap. And so what does Herod do? Does he come to his senses? Does he realize that perhaps he was overreacting? Does he decide that his policy of control has gone a little too far? Of course not. It's very rare to find one who lusts power, who wants to hold on, who will backtrack when their plans have failed. Again, this is the kind of man he is. He's hungry to wield that power, and when that power is undermined in any way as it was when the wise men disregarded his orders to report back to him. When the wise men in essence said no to the state. The answer to that undermining of power is to assert even more power. And that's what follows in verses 16-18. to 
Herod became furious. And in his anger, he ordered that every single male child who was two years old or younger, all of these infants, all of these toddlers, not only in Bethlehem, but in the whole surrounding region, all of them be executed. He, in essence, decreed post-birth abortion on a mass scale, infanticide, to achieve his ends, to secure his power. If he couldn't snuff out the Messiah, and if he couldn't get absolute obedience from the Magi, he would make everyone else pay through violence. There is also a not-so-subtle allusion here in Herod's actions to those of Pharaoh in the days of the Exodus. Moses, you'll remember, was of course Israel's first deliverer who by the power of God led the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and through the wilderness. But his own life had been in danger when Pharaoh... Likewise, fearing that his power would be undermined by the growing population of the people of Israel, Pharaoh decreed that all of the Hebrew male children should be killed. There's a connection here between Herod and Pharaoh. Herod, who is the supposed king of the Jews, was nothing more than a new Pharaoh. A man who feared the loss of power and who in that fear brought violence and bloodshed to innocence. That's the other part. The darker, more violent side. See, Christmas is not just about the glorious mystery of the Incarnation. It's not just about the divine work of God in the conception and birth of the Son. It's about how the incarnation is a threat to worldly powers. Rulers do not care if Christians want Christmas by exchanging presents with each other. They have no problem with that at all. They have no problem if Christmas trees are set up and pretty lights are hung. In fact, the rulers of the day love much, very much, of the sanitized version of Christmas because of its drivenness by consumerism. It it fills the pockets of local economies. It's good for business. But the moment that Christmas becomes about what it's actually about, the moment that it is declared that the King of Kings has been born and that all other rulers must submit to His authority, whether or not you claim to be a believer in Jesus or not, He is King. And you exist under His authority. The moment that message is declared, the moment their power is challenged in any way, they will fight with all of their strength to squash it. John the Baptist, for a time, was just an interesting preacher who preached in the wilderness. He was an interesting figure to the politicians of the day. But the moment that He confronted them and declared to them that they were acting lawlessly. The moment that He confronted them about their violation of the law of God, they killed Him by beheading. Jesus, likewise, was an interesting figure. Preached and healed 
He was a topic of conversation among the rulers. Herod's son, for example, who was also named Herod, was glad when he was able to see Jesus in person because he was hoping to see Him perform a miracle. Jesus was entertainment to him. But when He declared Himself to be the Son of God, when Jesus made it absolutely clear to all of the authorities of the day that His authority was higher than theirs, He says to Pilate that you would have no authority had it not been given to you above. He was considered a blasphemer. He was considered an insurrectionist. And he was considered one who had to be put to death. In our own day, it's becoming more and more obvious that rulers in the West are comfortable with Christianity as long as it stays within the walls of a local church building. But the moment that the church begins to declare that Jesus is Lord, not only over the church, but over all the earth, and that His Lordship includes, among other things, things like sexuality, what many would assert is, is something that remains in the privacy of your own home. There is no privacy before God. moment that a Christian asserts the Lordship of Christ over all realms of life, Christ can no longer be tolerated. I think this is especially evident in the recent passage of a new law in Canada that criminalizes conversion therapy. Find in the bill as a practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation. So, under this bill, a pastor who calls someone to repentance from ungodly and destructive not only behaviors, but desires. A pastor who calls people to repentance from the lust of the heart could find himself locked in jail for five years. Examples could be multiplied, but the point is that no one, no one has a problem with a sanitized, unintrusive message of Christmas. They have a problem the actual message of Christmas, which asserts the Lordship of Christ over all of life and sets up a clash between the kingdoms of the earth and the King of Kings, who is over the heavens and all of the earth. And that clash can often in violence, in death, and in great suffering and grief. Friends, as Christians, we have to be ready for that clash. For a long time, we have lived in a relative sense of ease and peace with governing authorities, and, and there are many reasons for this. Some of those reasons are, are good. There's a, a historically an influence of Christian arguments and ideas that got itself into the laws of the land. That's a good thing. But there's, always, there's also many bad reasons why we have enjoyed such ease and comfort. A lot of the bad reasons have to do with so many of the compromises that we have made in our theology. And certainly it is the case that we, we want to live at peace with all people as much as possible. But sometimes that's just not possible. 
And it's not because God is too rigid in His ways. It's because men are too rebellious in theirs. That's why the clash can exist. The message of Christmas, the full story of Christmas is a reminder to us the incarnation is not a neutral event. It's a proclamation from on high the rulers of the earth that their authority only exists because of a higher authority in heaven. And that the King of heaven has been born and has declared His over all the earth. As even He says after the, the resurrection, all authority has been given to Me in heaven and on earth. No authorities exist apart from His sovereign rule. He has declared His Lordship over every sphere. Over governments, over laws, over rulers, over individuals, even over the thoughts and desires of the mind and heart. As Abraham Kuyper once famously wrote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And that message is not often going to be well received. And we have to be prepared to stand firm in it and to declare it with boldness even when the ruling authorities would come attempting to persuade us to compromise. And even when they come with the blade of the sword, threaten us into submission. Whatever the circumstances may be. The truths of Christmas in all of their fullness may be costly for us. And we have to be prepared to suffer loss because of because of this message. Because of Christ. Now, between the rulers of the age and the lordship of Christ can sometimes violence and death and suffering as we're reminded in this very passage. This passage also reminds us as well why the cost of following the Lordship of Christ is always worth it. It reminds us that even the most sinister plots in will never be able to thwart the plans of God in heaven or on earth. And this reminder comes to us from a seemingly place. At the end of this passage, when Herod has carried out his bloody massacre on the children of Judea. Matthew quotes a passage from Jeremiah 31, verse 15 that we read earlier. It says, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This verse in Jeremiah is describing sorrow that existed in the kingdom of Judah when the Babylonian Empire came and conquered them and slaughtered many and exiled many more. It's an expression of real sorrow in response to what appeared to be the kingdoms of the world claiming victory over the people of God and thwarting plans and promises of God He had made to the people of Israel when He swore that one would sit on the throne of the kingdom of David forever. Well, now their whole nation is destroyed. And there is no throne. So to all appearances, it looks like the kingdoms of the world have won. And they are grieving. Loss of the promises over the loss of their children. But in the very next verse of that same chapter, 
God says to these same weeping people of Judah, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping. Do not cry. Keep your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, and your children shall come back to their own country. God is declaring to them that even though it appears that the kingdoms of the earth have won, that their violence is the last word the promises of God will prevail and the people of God will return to their land and the Lord will fulfill His promises made to them. It's in that same chapter that He then goes on to promise them that He will make a new covenant with them in the future. This is Jeremiah 31. Perhaps one of the most glorious passages in the prophet. It's in the same chapter where the people are weeping over the destruction of the kingdom of Judah that God says, I will make a new covenant. In Matthew, at the end of this story, it is a reminder to us likewise that even though it may appear that the kingdoms of the earth are prevailing in their schemes, it is God who will have the last word. It is God who will have the last laugh. None of Herod's schemes succeeded in killing Christ. His manipulation of the wise men, his lies, his deceit in saying that he wanted to worship the Christ only to kill him. His then subsequent massacre of all of these children did nothing to stop promises of God in sending the Christ into the world to achieve the plan of salvation. And when the rulers of this age oppose the rule of Christ, we too do not need to fear schemes will ever succeed. We read at the very beginning this morning in our call to worship, Psalm 2. The psalm about the installation of the Son, today gotten you. This is Kingdom installation language. Christ installed on the throne. And this, Psalm 2 says, despite all of the scheming of the kings and nations of the earth to cast off the bonds from them, to break off what they perceive to be chains from God, they're trying to rebel against. Rule And Psalm 2 declares that as this rebellion is taking place, the Lord sits in the heavens and laughs. There is no stopping the plans of God and there is no defeating of His Christ. And so that is the encouragement to us the encouragement to have all of the boldness in the world. That despite whatever schemes there may be, despite whatever pressures there may be to compromise the Gospel, we ought never to do so because the Lord through Christ will succeed. And His kingdom will be and is the only kingdom that shall be forever. So if you are to submit yourself to a ruler, it is always ultimately to be the ruler who sits in heavens even now. You submit yourself to Christ. You obey Christ. And you obey Him even when the rulers of the world say you obey them contrary to Christ. The Christmas story is a reminder that not only 
Not only is there a clash between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of the earth, but there is a reminder that we can still walk in boldness despite that clash and trust in the Lord and be faithful to Him. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it is no doubt the case all around the world that many of our brothers and sisters are suffering under various forms of persecution, trial. Many of them have to worship in secret in underground churches because the governing authorities are seeking to root them out. Many more are now entering into situations where once friendly governments are now turning hostile to them. And they are having to make decisions that they perhaps never had to make before on whether or not they are going to be loyal to the king of kings or to lower kings. And Lord, it is also the case for us that we will not escape these conflicts that arise. And that just as throughout every generation, various trials come to your people, come to us, where we have to make a decision on whether or not we're going to be obedient to the Lord Jesus or obedient to our own authority or obedient to the authorities of the world. When these trials come, Lord, I pray for all of us that we would be obedient to Christ and that we would be reminded of the great truths of the Christmas story. That He who is the Son of God was born King of the Jews and now reigns at the right hand of God, King of kings, Lord of lords, and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. So Lord, may this give us boldness, I pray.